0: This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update video and podcast. Today, we're talking about how the COVID pandemic created a blueprint for accelerating innovation and how we can keep that momentum going long-term. I'm joined today by Dr. Nancy Jin, Executive Vice President of Quality and Chief Quality Officer at the Permanente Federation, as well as Medical Director of Quality and Analysis at the Southern California Permanente Medical Group in Pasadena, California. She's gonna share how she's leading that effort at Permanente. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. Jin, it's a pleasure to have you today.
1: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, Todd. Thank you.
0: Well, you recently published uh, an interesting commentary that looks at the intersection of quality and research in the era of COVID-19, and you opened by explaining that even prior to the pandemic, the U.S. spent more on health care than most high-income nations, and yet we haven't seen a return on that investment with improved outcomes. I'd say that's probably the the billion or trillion dollar question. Why don't you start by telling us what the kind of statistics are that paint
1: that picture? They're pretty sobering statistics, Todd. Um, You know, in 2020, CMS estimated that the United States spent um, some $4 trillion on health care, accounting for about 19.7% of our gross domestic product. So uh, that is more than any other country in the world. Um, The average for industrialized nations is really about 12 and a half percent. When you think about the actual dollars though, uh, because the US economy is the largest in the world, um, covering almost $21 trillion, um, we are more than 40% larger than second place China and four times larger than third place Japan. So when you actually think about the true dollars that we're spending, you would think that we would have a healthier country, but that's not the case. Uh, In fact, pre-pandemic, we ranked out of 194 countries somewhere, depending on who you ask, between 40th and 46th in life expectancy. Um, and during the pandemic in 2020, we fell even farther to 54th place behind countries like Croatia, Colombia, and Thailand. Um, so for the dollars that we're spending, we can do better.
0: So those are very disappointing numbers and statistics, obviously. Uh, costs of healthcare that uh, seem to to continue to rise and not seeing that output, um, you know, certainly a huge challenge. And one of the things that you point out kind of in the underlying factors is that the profession has typically been really slow to translate research findings into clinical practice. In fact, you cite uh, that it takes up to 17 years, uh, which is a pretty staggering figure How's that possible? is there some kind of systemic or other factor involved here that prevents kind of quicker adaptation?
1: Yeah. um, You know, that 17-year figure came from a study uh, from the National Academy of Medicine back in 2001. So it's been a number that has been out there for uh, a couple of decades and, unfortunately, probably really hasn't changed appreciably. There was identified at that time by the um, Institute of Medicine's Committee on Quality of Healthcare in America that part of the problem created was this quality chasm that exists between what we know to be good quality care and what we're actually getting uh, for care. And some of the reasons um, are that research needs to be methodical We have to have controlled trials or peer review. Um, Those are necessary. We also know that there's um, some variability when we get evidence uh, between that evidence and what the current uh, community of practice is willing to accept. Um, We also find that there are oftentimes insufficient tools, Um, and incentives um, that are laid out for teams to adopt best practices, along with um, sometimes resource constraints for personnel. Um, You have to have an IT infrastructure in some cases, and you really need sponsorship by your local leaders to really implement those kinds of changes and embrace something that's new.
0: I, uh, that, uh, that term, quality chasm, we'll make sure to note that. It's really interesting. Um, you know, in terms of that timing, I guess we should all thank our lucky stars. It didn't take 17 years to uh, create our uh, vaccine for COVID, for instance. Um, and we know through the pandemic that there actually, there is the capability to respond very quickly uh, kind of to, d- to new developments uh, we saw that uh, on, the, on the medical side. We saw that certainly with the widespread and very, very uh, fast jump in the usage of telehealth that happened. So we've got the ability to do this. Um, were there other kind of shifts there that made an acceleration kind of possible? And why does it take a crisis like COVID to jumpstart this?
1: Um, you know, I think you highlighted uh, well, Todd, that many of these initiatives in telehealth Um, as well as the science behind, for instance, mRNA vaccinations had started years before the COVID pandemic came around. Um, So none of this started with the pandemic, but you use the term accelerated. And yes, the pandemic served as an accelerant, like throwing gas on a fire um, that took those years of foundational work um, and really enabled us to implement it quickly. Um, there were other factors um, like some modifications of regulatory and governmental uh, rules that allowed for fast tracking of some of these COVID treatments and vaccination efforts. Um, you know, that term emergency use authorization, for instance, um, that the FDA employed so many times wasn't even on the lexicon um, in healthcare um, before the pandemic, but was employed repeatedly during this process. Um, So while we don't give all the credit to the pandemic for getting these implemented, um, it allowed us to put into context a little bit more um, why we needed to do this and why it had to happen now.
0: Is there a way that we can kind of keep this pace of knowledge sharing going uh this kind of level of acceleration in terms of of knowledge sharing you know post pandemic
1: you know that was one of the most gratifying aspects of an otherwise horrifying um episode in history uh, which was the coming together of the global scientific community um, from the very earliest days of the pandemic Um, We saw researchers and physicians from all across the world, from countries like China and Italy, which saw the first outbreaks, and states like Washington and New York, um, where personnel were so ready to share their observations and findings since SARS-CoV-2 was a novel virus at the time with very little established knowledge. Um, You know, we do think that we can keep this going. Um, In groups like mine, um, we quickly put up playbooks and best practices and shared with other health agencies and others shared with us. Um, Research, for instance, at the Mayo Clinic, they put some of their earliest convalescent plasma research online for people to review during the first three months so that we could learn together and share that information and apply it quickly. Um, so we got underway. Um, scientists began getting used to this level of rapid collaboration, um, and we really do hope um, that that spirit continues um, well past um, the pandemic.
0: Well, I want to dig a little, a uh, little bit more uh, to this issue around speeding, accelerating, kind of research and practice, and in fact. Uh, we know that Kaiser Permanente was focused on uh, that kind of acceleration before the pandemic, and you had what you called a, you know, quote blueprint uh, for innovation spread. Tell us a little bit more about that, and you know, did that prepare you for what Mother Nature then threw at us?
1: Um, you know, back in twenty. 20- Fourteen. Um, my quality predecessors um, challenged our, we have an evidence-based medicine group in Kaiser Permanente, Southern California. Um, and they were challenged to develop a program to monitor and disseminate the high quality published studies. You know, there are more than a quarter million studies published every year, and now probably even more. And it's literally impossible for any physician or researcher to wrap their arms around the entirety of that and glean out what are the best studies and the best new approaches to taking care of patients.
0: Medicine doesn't stand still. And at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit AMA-ASSN.org slash movingmedicine. So
1: in 2015 was born the Evidence Scanning for Clinical Operational and Practice Efficiency, or eScope, effort. Um, And it really uses a strategic evidence search algorithm. Um, to conduct uh, proactive literature searches of all of those quarter million studies every year, uh, looking at the high value studies and really pulling out um, about 50 to 70 each year that are then reviewed by content experts, clinical leaders um, for appropriateness and feasibility of implementation. Um, So the ESCOPE team works really closely with stakeholders. They develop an implementation plan educational content for all of the uh, physicians and team members who would be uh, involved in this kind of practice improvement. Um, And a couple of years, a few years ago in 2019, we published another study that showed that ESCOPE efforts had effectively reduced that 17 year period of implementation of best practices down to four to 36 months. So, uh, Yes, and so I'm gonna give you one example, uh, for instance, of uh, an effort. So um, ESCOPE team identified through a number of studies that hemodialysis patients who exercise during their dialysis sessions had improved physical conditioning. So sitting in a chair for dialysis 12 hours a week um, can really lead to weakness and fatigue. And so they found that resistance exercise training, which includes you get resistance bands and you have someone, one of the care team who can make sure you're doing this properly um, and rounded on the patients during their dialysis um, was implemented implemented in a couple of our dialysis centers in Orange County. Um, And participants found that during this process, they had improvement in fatigue, physical functioning, mood, and anxiety. And it is very low cost. It empowers the patients to take control of their health. Um, so it's really a win-win um, and very easy to implement. So since 2015, we've implemented about 71 initiatives or they're in process of implementation now.
0: That's uh, that's really great news. Um, and I'm interested more in talking to you about the being able to pivot quickly, I just, uh, a memory of mine that I will never forget is the last day that we were kind of in office before uh, leaving before the pandemic, we were talking to Dr. Stephen Perotti in the Permanente Medical Group and hearing what was going on out in the hotspot in San Francisco very, very early in the pandemic. Uh, and then just following kind of the pivots as we learn more. When you think about the work that you're doing, what what did you learn discover about care during COVID that kind of framed your ability to pivot during that time period?
1: Um, You know, Steve is a really good friend of mine uh, and we have worked very closely during the entirety of this pandemic and he was spot on. Um, You know, one of the biggest things that we saw um, was that um, during the pandemic, we saw that patients, um, including those who come from underrepresented communities, were far more willing and receptive to the use of technology in receiving their care. Um, We also saw that our own team members, so physicians and nurses, um, therapists, uh, social workers and others were also more receptive to using telehealth modalities to deliver care as well. Um, So we did a study in Southern California's research and evaluation group um, that found that uh, interestingly, our Latinx community and low-income patients had the largest percentage increase use of telehealth from January 5th to October 31st, 2020. So that was in the heat of the uh, newness of the pandemic. Um, It looked at a diversity of, 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 our membership. Um, And it was fascinating that for Latinx patients, the increase in telehealth was 295%. um, And for low-income groups, uh, the increase was um, almost 315% for telehealth visits. So it really demonstrated that virtual approaches like these um, that can go even beyond the pandemic, Um, And so we've taken those programs like e-visits where members can answer screening questions and be guided um, through almost self-help approach to helping their own care. Um, And then we've also expanded remote monitoring to include additional conditions such as hypertension monitoring in pregnant patients. So the benefits of the pandemic continue to live on today as it has expanded our approach to thinking about how members are willing and want to receive their care.
0: Dr. Jen, last question. One of the other things uh, in your commentary uh, was this notion of the virtuous cycle, which uh, includes a key component being physician-led research. Talk to us a little bit about that concept, why it's so important, and how do we get more physicians interested in research?
1: You know, um, the virtuous cycle that I talked about in the uh, article uh, really has to do with um, clinical practice, uh, where every day as we go through taking care of patients, we ask ourselves question, is this treatment better than that treatment? Or, um, Is this the most effective? Uh, Why are we doing this? Is there science behind it? Um, And so those clinical questions actually can inform research. Um, Research then takes that question, fleshes out the evidence behind it, and then provides that information back to the clinicians um, to enhance practice. And so that virtuous cycle continues. It's really important to make sure that there is a physician-led component to this Um, because it is the physicians who are really actively seeing the patients and providing that critical thinking as they pull questions from their real life experiences um, that help to sharpen those study questions. Um, Beyond that, Um, research actually has been shown to provide an opportunity to fulfill that fourth pillar of the quadruple aim that brings joy back to medicine by allowing physicians to contribute to population health beyond simply that one-on-one patient care. And studies have shown that diverse clinical and non-clinical activities like research can substantively improve career satisfaction, which ultimately leads to better patient care. And that's really what we're here for.
0: Gosh, you've hit on so many huge ideas, not the least of which is that last one you talked about uh, with physicians having been through so much uh, to reestablish and maintain that kind of joy and practice and the connections that you've talked about uh, to to the research uh, and being able to do that. Uh, I wish you the best of luck, because I'd like to see that number uh, 17 years come down dramatically, like you talked about it in your examples. And uh, it's exciting to think about the impact that could have on healthcare and the return that we see on, uh, on our spending here. Dr. Jin, thank you so much for joining us today. That wraps up our COVID-19 update for this particular episode. We'll be back with more shortly. In the meantime, you can see all our podcasts and videos at ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Take care. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org
1: slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.